Hey, Soraya, how's it going? Woo, it is hot. Oh my gosh, I am burning up here in Temecula Valley. Mm, mm, mm. And here in the San Fernando Valley, it is not that much better. It is H-O-T-T hot. But yes. today, speaking of hot, <laughs> we've got um, Ronnie Barnett. Very special, huh? Ronnie Barnett, speaking of uh, hot. Well, you know, if I'm talking about hot, of course I'm talking about Ronnie Barnett, guest host extraordinaire. Yes. Um, but also we've got a real special <coughs> group of guests uh, joining us today with Ronnie, and that is the band Flying Color. Yes. Yeah. This was so, a session uh, of Ronnie, so. Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's meant to be a good a good time. So, um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to learning more and talking with the band about their work and uh, this album, which. It has a lot of love from fans. And considering the band releases one single, one album, and then uh, moves on. Uh, the fact that there are still fans who remember and remember this, this band fondly and really kind of look at them as a band that could have done a lot more. So I don't know, I say, get started yeah let's do it because we got lots to learn all right hi this is soraya and this is jeff our podcast is called paisley stage raspberry and rhyme a podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes we hope you'll join our conversation and without further ado agroviar let's get groovy All right, Soraya. So here we are. We managed to get two members of Flying Color. Um, Hector Peñalosa, welcome. And oh, Dale Duncan. Uh, we tried reaching out to Richard and John, but no luck. But um, so I guess we got the important talking heads here today. And of course, we're joined <laughs> by Ronnie Barnett. Speaking of talking heads, TV star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, surprised there's no, it's not pandemonium right now. Yeah, thank yeah, you, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, got, I, I, I kept waiting to see Gene Simmons walk by. <laughs> That's later. We, we expect that to yeah. happen in about a half an hour. He's a, you know, yeah, for, he's a for what now. it's worth, I did reach out to Richard and John. Um, Richard and I texted back and forth, and he was aware, but he's always been a little uh, quieter. But uh, he, he allegedly, the one piece of news I got is he did move back to California. He's been out of the state for a while. Oh, I, I didn't follow up on it. So maybe he'll can partake in one of our very rare but occasional reunions. And John, John said he was going to reach out because he he didn't want to be interviewed, he said, but he had some things he wanted to talk or he wanted some subject matter to come up. And he he said he would reach out. But so if he didn't do that, that's on him. OK, OK. Mm. We might have to share this episode and then get some follow-up information. <laughs> but, yeah, that's intriguing. That's intriguing. I wonder. It what was. I wasn't sure. He did. He just said, "Yeah." Because I don't really want to do it, but but there's a couple of topics I hope they cover, and I was like, "Well, okay, let them know." Interesting. <laughs> all right, we're gonna have to do some follow-ups, Raya. Yeah. I, I I hear part two. That's all I hear. Part two. Yeah. Maybe yeah, uh, part two will have. Uh, Richard and John. Okay. <laughs> there yeah. you go. And maybe Pokey. Why not? Pokey might join. 
So, so Soraya, I, th I think you came up with a quote that I think is a good opening quote to get, get us started here. Yes, so uh, as Jeff and I were doing research, I came across this quote and I thought it was a great jumping off point. So this person is talking about the album and they mentioned Dear Friend, the lead off track, and then they add this. But the album has more to offer than just a drop dead single. While most of mostly mid-tempo tunes with soaring harmonies, it doesn't matter and farewell song, just a couple of terrific examples. They occasionally ratchet up the energy and cut loose, like on the rousing Believe Believe, calling to mind some of Guadalcanal Diary's work or the 60s revivalist of the Pace in the Underground. Through different eyes, similarly, minds a nostalgic 60s pop sound. They were one of the rare bands without an obvious frontman with three members contributing songs to the mix, Shades of Teenage Fan Club there, giving the album a bit of variety while still sounding consistent and cut from a similar cloth. Okay, I guess we're done. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, good everything, yeah. Good night, folks. Uh, <laughs> So Hector, let's get started with you because I've read different things about how the band actually got started. Um, right. So I was reading an interview with you where you mentioned that you and Richard kind of got it going. Can you tell us a little bit about how the band got started? Yeah, um, well, um, around 1980, the Zeros broke up and we were living in San Francisco at the time. And Javier Escovedo, who had started the Zeros, um, decided to and the band and he moved to Austin and I wanted to stay in the city. I had a job and friends and a girlfriend. So I hung around and then the drummer in the Zeros, Baba stayed for a couple of years. So we thought, let's do something together, you know? And he brought up Richard Chase. He says, hey, I know this guitar player. He's from Imperial Beach in San Diego, but he lives in San Francisco and he's a really amazing guitar player. And I thought, well, let's, let's meet him. And so we got together with him and it's a funny story. At the time I was working at a place called the Coffee Roaster uh, in the financial district. It was one of these gourmet coffee shops with Melitas and French presses and you know freshly ground coffee and all this business. And um, the owner, Mar Murray Jaffe, had a daughter named Barbara who uh, represented a vegetarian bakery company called Barbara's Bakery. And they're very popular at the time, this early eighties before it became trendy. And um, Anyways, Barbara was trying to come up with a jingle and wanted some musicians to back her up. So Murray knew that I played music. He says, hey, can you get some musicians together to help my daughter, you know? And she was already in her mid-30s, whatever. And, we, and I said, yeah, let's do it. What not? So I, I got Bob and I got Richard involved. And we met up with Barbara and we're trying to, you know, she wanted to write songs about sugar and how bad it was for you, but I was good. And I said, this is weird, whatever. But that's how we initiated, you know, the, 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 the connection with Richard. And then uh, Baba decided to move away. So, but Baba was really uh, unofficially before Flying Color was called Flying Color. He was, the, you could say, the first drummer, you know, oh. way back. And then he moved away. And so then Richard and I were like, well, you know, let's just keep playing. And Richard was uh, on unemployment at the time. And um, I'd go over to his apartment in the city and we'd spend hours just writing songs together. It got to the point where we had about 18 songs. And we just decided, you know, we got to flesh this out with a full band. Let's, let's find some musicians so we can like play these and see how they sound with the drums and bass and a couple of guitars, you know. So that was how the whole thing started with Richard and I. And then uh, we put 
an ad in BAM Magazine, which is a local music paper in San Francisco. And of course, we got all the rejects applying, and it was just like a leany satiricon ship movie, you know, like, oh, this guy couldn't work, you know, he's got a beautiful guitar, but he can't play it, you know, or they showed up dressed up all new wave, or you, you, you just, you can imagine how that went, but um, eventually, then we had um, John Silvers, who was a drummer in, in the Dills, playing with us for a while in wow. the beginning, but, but that didn't work out, so so we had to let him go, and then Kevin Hunter from Wire Train oh. was the one who said, hey, I know a, a, a guy who's going to fit in with you guys perfectly. His name is Dale Duncan. And I said, okay, well, give me his number. And then we talked, you know, Dale and I, and then he said, hey, I know a drummer who, who, work in, who work, will work with us really well. And that was John, John Stewart. And they were roommates at the time. And that's how the band came together, you know. You can share your Hector, what, what did that band magazine ad say? What 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 influences <laughs> did you list in there? I didn't like, see what? it. <laughs> no, yeah, that was way before. Yeah, yeah, we were just looking for a, a a guitar player and a drummer, but mostly a guitar player because at that time we I think we had John Silvers playing with us, and I was playing. I decided I was going to play with the guitar originally, but we had such a hard time with uh, getting somebody to play bass. I said, well, I'll just play the bass like I've had with the zeros and force myself to sing more with the bass, you know, uh, uh, on my hand. And uh, yeah, we got, I remember one guy came, came to, the, to, the, to the audition and he was wearing, you know, these uh, black and white checkered tight pants and uh, like a red patent leather, like sleeveless, I don't know what it was with zippers on it. He was trying to look all new way, but it was like something out of Valley Girl, you know, and, and, and <laughs> And he had this beautiful brand new Stratocaster. And the crazy thing was like, he couldn't even play it really. You know, he could barely play it. <laughs> you know? But that's how it was, you know, back then. Yeah. He had, he had the look and the guitar. Yeah, just not the, uh, not the talent. <laughs> so, no chops. Yeah, right. So you meet Dale. Now, now Dale, do you arrive and meet these guys and, and immediately say, I have a bunch of songs as well? How, how no, it was interesting. You know, I'd been in, I, I'd, I'd, you know, gotten involved in music via punk rock. You know, I'd been in the 70s, loved music, grew up on the Beatles and all that. And then obviously, like for so many people, punk rock kind of opened the door. It's like, hey, I can, you know, I, I could never play like, uh, you know, Jimmy Page, but, you know, Joe Strummer, I saw that I could do that, you know, and it was kind of like the, the intro to it. And then by, you know, it's interesting because you guys are the Paisley Underground thing here. That was what really seduced me to another level because I had grown up with like the Beatles and, and pop music and all that. And I'd gotten, then I started playing via punk rock, but the punk rock thing had gotten so boring in the early eighties, it kind of became a uniform. It was the, the hardcore thing was taking off and, um, you know, and there was just there was a, there was a weird period in the early 80s where it was kind of factions. It was like punk was kind of going hardcore, but then there was other things kind of bubbling up, you know, and uh, 
so I was, I had this band called Love Circus, which was the people I went to school with, I went to high school with that were, you know, basically they were all the punk rock new wave fans in my high school. We decided to make a band and, uh, and we played around. And I think I, as we started doing it, I really was enjoying it and wanted to keep playing. And I think they were all, everybody was in college and they were kind of dropping off. And I was like, I want to do this. And that's where I think I had met Kevin Hunter and he was like, you know, these guys are putting a band together. I think you would really fit. And so when I, when I met them, it was just like right up my alley, you know, they had a batch of songs or whatever, as well as it was kind of like, and if you have any songs and I had like always kind of written, you know, chord progressions and kind of that, I was like a rhythm guitar player. So for my previous band, they had a lead singer and I wasn't really a song writer. I was kind of like the groove man and you know, I'd put like these chord changes together and so suddenly it was like wow i could write a song and that farewell song came immediately like that was the first song i wrote walked in and Richard was like those are good chords <laughs> and it was just you know and pretty soon we just started playing and uh, and so it, that was kind of my and then dear friend came pretty quickly after that but it was kind of just opportunity knocks like I had been waiting for more space to do it and that was just a really comfortable environment to start taking on the whole package with simpatico people you know one thing about about the songwriting part of the of Blind Color was that, I mean Richard was uh, an excellent songwriter, an excellent guitar player. And when him and I were getting together in the early part, I mean, he'd say, oh, I wrote a song, it's called Monica Monica. And I wrote this song, it's called I'm Your Shadow. I'm like, holy hell, this guy is like knocking him out of the ballpark. So, you know, he put the, he set the bar for songwriting in that band to a really high level. So uh, for me personally, I said, I got to write good songs too. And then um, you know, Dale comes in and in Farewell Song, it's just such a great song, you know, and, and you're like, man, this is going to be good. And so I think um, without communicating with each other, we just knew that, you know, there was this understanding that the songs have to be great no matter what. And we had to really practice and making them good uh, with rehearsals, uh, the arrangements, you name it, you know. There was def de definitely like, I, for sure, there was that that thing where you felt like, oh my God, like if I'm going to show this, it's got to be kind of good. Like it really pushed everybody's bar a little bit. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, a, a good song, you can play with a crappy guitar, it's going to be a good song, you know? And that's the <laughs> thing, right? Yesterday, all the love we 
really quickly to digress I, it makes me laugh because you left out a drummer i love how flying color as a pop band we actually have like this amazing litany of punk rock drummers you know baba yes. starts out right, right. then john silvers from the dills is the drummer but hector left out that the dead kennedy's drummer bruce schlesinger was also <laughs> a great <laughs> drummer wow. so, I mean, we had like some heavy hitting punk rock drummers in there for a pop band wow yeah, yeah so so you you guys arrived on this uh, direction this kind of like folky more uh, excuse the term jangly direction i mean you have these punk drummers what was it more punky at first or <laughs> I, no. I wish it was available <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> i think the as, as we said the original thing was like the original punk rock thing was like kind of fading away and it was kind of like this other generation came in that was doing hard like i remember seeing hector's band the wolverines you know i saw the zeros when i was younger when they first came up from la you know at barrington hall in berkeley and the map and stuff and then then uh he was in this band the wolverines it was kind of people like there was definitely like the original punk scene was kind of it was, it was there was people kind of evolving you know like john silvers quickly went into silvertone which became you know right. Isaac's band, or, or was in that yeah. period actually i take it back he, he had he was w with us or with you guys and briefly with me when silver he got first booted out of silvertone yeah and this, <laughs> that's an interesting one because you know think about the whole silvertone chris isaac thing he had john silvers then you got Jimmy Wilsey from the Avengers. Yeah. Right? Another yeah. punk band. And I gotta tell you a quick story. When 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 John got into that group, he called me up and said, You should be playing with, with Chris and I. And I wasn't into that. I think I was doing the Wolverines at the time. And I just yeah. wasn't. And then when Jimmy joined, he did the same thing. He called me up and said, You should be playing with <laughs> Jimmy and I. And like, well, and now he, you're in the Avengers. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Jimmy Wilson, you know, it's like, and he was a good guy, and I, and I loved him, and, and and I said, okay, I'll 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 see what's up, and I did. I I went, I met Chris Isaac, and we we um you know made some uh, plans to rehearse and whatever. It was around that time when Eric Jacobson came in, who had managed and recorded Love and Spoonful, Warner Brothers, etc. But I think he had other plans, you know, and eventually, um, one day John calls me up. He says, hey, I just got a copy of the contract from at Jacobson Warner Brothers and, you know, it's all about Chris Isaac. They only want to give um, me 10% or 20%. And there's a clause that says that the backup musicians can get fired any, any time without reason. And so he's, he quit, you know, John just walked away from it. And I just was like, well, now that I know this information, I really <laughs> I didn't really have my Don't heart anyways. So I was just kind of going along feeling it at that moment, you know, see if it was going to be worth investing time or not. And then um, I just kind of just lost interest in it. And it was really, I mean, I could tell it from, from the very get-go, this is a Chris Isaac thing, no matter what, you know? But Jimmy stuck it out, you know? He stuck it out yeah. and you gotta give him a lot of credit, man. He gave, gave Isaac that sound, that, that, that oh. bushy, star, beautiful, mysterious sound, you know? He never really got the credit that he deserved. I mean, a book just got published. I, yeah. I'm sure you, you heard about it. I read it, it's, it's a pretty, tragic but in incredibly amazing book and he deserves to have to have that book written about him, you know to, to loop to loop this quickly it was eric jacobson too that brought so much to the flying color record kind of via osmosis with uh, tom mallon because tom mallon was engineering those early um isaac records and it was great like having uh, eric jacobson just being around and talking to him because suddenly you're in a room with a guy that's like 
cut serious hit records in the 60s, you know, and worked with yeah. Tim Harden. It was like suddenly we're hanging out with like the real deal. And, and Tom worked with him uh, so much. And there was just all kinds of little editing tricks and like listening to track, just like it, it kind of moved his bar up to a whole other level that we, yep. we took advantage of by being, you know, it was kind of like, wow, we could really, you know, let's just, it, it, it was just, it, it, I could go on and on about stuff that he learned, that Tom yeah. learned from Eric Jacobson. Oh, for sure. Because just to, to clarify that, what Dale just said is basically that when we started making our album at, Tom Allen's 16 track studio. That's around the exact same time that Chris Isaac was recording his first LP. And we were having to work around Chris Isaac's schedule because Chris Isaac's sessions were getting getting the money to Tom, you know. Jim, Jim Keltner was just here. Stuff like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I definitely want to talk about Tom Mallon. Um, First, I just want to say that it's funny because Eric Jacobson probably seems so old to you guys when you met him. He's probably 40, right? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Blonde, that's um, I remember. Yeah. Hector called so him I Sasquatch. In... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was always intrigued with Tom Mallon because I'd see his name on records and stuff. Like, like did he, uh, was he in bands like in the? He produced the music club. He was a drummer. Yeah, yeah no, I. I, yeah, I know him as a producer and stuff, but but I mean, was how did he become like this producer? He, he, his, his story to me was that he he was definitely in the 70s. Like he was about five years older than me. I think he's born like in 57. He he, he grew up with rock and roll and, and um, wanted to do it. And I think at some point he started doing his own home studio in the late 70s. And he just got more, he felt like he was getting more into that and never really satisfied with his own songwriting. And he kind of just realized like, oh my God, this is what I'm at. And I still remember to this day, that was a great once when we first met him and he was clearly like liking us. We went down to just cut a demo and paid. And right away he liked us and he was like, oh my God, this band is cool. And it was kind of, he was already working with American Music Club. And then that's when he decided he was gonna make his own label, Grifter Records. And he, yeah. and he basically said like, I want you guys too. And I don't wanna record a bunch of bands anymore. I just wanna record a few bands and try and do something really great. And I still remember Tom once where I came in and I made some weird chord. I didn't know what it was. And I'm like showing him, what is this? And he's like, tries to figure it out. He goes, I don't know. That's like an F. It's like an F11. And they finally <laughs> says, it doesn't fucking matter. Just go back in the other room and write another song. You know, he goes, well, you'll end up like me. You don't want to know too much about this stuff. Just go write another song. I remember, I remember when, when Tom decided he was going to start Grifter. And I remember after we made the demos at his studio and he really liked the results and the band and the, and the songs and when he offered us the 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 record deal he says okay he says i'm starting grifter and i'm off you guys uh a record deal and if you guys don't take it then i'm going to give it to my girlfriend's band called ugly stick and i remember i said to him, no no ugly stick it's got to be my color Ugly. Now, now, had the seven inch uh, had your seven inch single happened before you met Tom? That or? seven inch sing, it, it well, it was the demo. It, the, the seven inch is basically the original demo that we we started paying for. Like we went in, like booking some sessions to do some songs, and then that week later, as we were working on top, started making a record. The Cryptovision people like wanted. They we already had that. It's the demo. It's like the first recordings we did with Tom. Yeah. yeah for after we did, we worked with Kevin Army. There's a, de a demo tape with Kevin Army, who's an early Green Day 
producer. Yeah. He's like yes. the local guy here. Uh, and we, we were a horrible drum sound. I guess, bless his heart. I love Kevin, but uh, it was that 80s thing. And we did that <laughs> giant drum sound thing. And that was. It was the mid 80s. Well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't wear well. How, yeah. how did you hook up with this label, CryptoVision? Because uh, they're on the East Coast, correct? Yeah. Uh, uh, Dave Amos, who owned it with Mike Lynn, who um, also uh, owned it. Mike Lynn lives in New York, and Dave Amos was originally from New Jersey. And Dave relocated to Berkeley because he started working for Navy Wireless Systems back in the early 80s. And um, he hung around Piedmont, which is a, a little... Um, suburb of, of Oakland and um, I was roommates with a old friend of mine Joe Hartman who was a drummer and uh, Joe knew Dave, uh, Dave Amos and when Flying Colors started playing around uh, Joe had come, gone to some shows and saw us play and one day he said to me hey you know I know this guy he's got a, a little record label and um, he probably will really like your band I'm gonna have him go so you play. So he went to the Ivy. I think we played at the Ivy. That's when he saw us, and and he offered us this uh, seven-inch release. And we actually, um, you know, did the recording, and uh, and then we actually went to New York for like what was it two weeks, right, Dale? And then we, we or like a week, it, it was we fun. We got to play all the. We played Folk City and Maxwell's and yeah. the Bitter End and Tramps. Yeah. It was like a nice first yeah. trip to New York. Yeah, just to promote the forty-five. It was really great, great trip, you know. And then he wanted us to also do an album, but by then we had already locked in with Tom and um, ended up that that we didn't do the record with Cryptovision. So um, Dave Amos said to me, well, if I'm not, if we're not gonna do Flying Color, why don't you do a solo album? <laughs> and so I ended up doing <laughs> a solo album. Yeah, that's how that ended up with Cryptovision. You're skipping ahead a few years though. That's pretty- Yeah, yeah, we'll get to later, that. Yeah. We'll get to that solo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a, so, so that's a demo late. version of Dear Friend. Uh, on the single, yes, and then right. and then there's a great song called "Look My Way" um, on the B side. I love that song. It didn't make the CD for some reason, uh, you guys. Uh, Wonder what? Huh? Yeah, How'd that happened. <laughs> That's weird. I was I was gonna say oh, okay. I thought I thought one of you would be like, yeah, I don't care for that song. So it was this this didn't this want band, it, didn't want it on there. That, that's one of my favorites to me. I, I love yeah. what I love about that song is it's definitely was in the first batch. Like when I first met the guys, like it was in, yeah. it was like there. And it was like, I remember I learned that rhythm part or whatever. And it was just like, we all sang together and it was just like, boom. I think it was probably like half inspired farewell song. I think I learned that song and then went home and wrote farewell song, but it was definitely like that core batch of original stuff that we really, it was just so, sweet it was good and then and once again that was like with tom at that little instrumental part in the end richard's guitar part there's that weird i forget i don't even know what that sound is they put on that guitar in there it's kind of all striated part you know that was like suddenly working with tom is like part of the band how can we like really make this thing jump so it was just a, that was the beginning I, I would call that sing like dear friend and look my way are totally the beginning of our collaboration as a band and and with tom
so you're on Grif so grifter grifter records at this point is you in the, in the american music club now now how does how does tom hook up with frontier records let me tell you i'll tell you too you go tell him actor please what happened was i was already friends with john silva who was in a relationship with lisa fancher who i did not know was uh the owner of frontier and what happened was when 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 we started um working with tom uh i had some questions so i thought well i'm gonna talk to john because john silva had uh experience and i said john hey you know this is what's happening with flying color and we're about to finish this recording because I remember we spent about 10 months making the record and um, Tom said, well, I'm gonna go, only going to print 1500 to start. And I was kind of bummed. I thought, well, we spent so much time on it. You know, I was expecting more, more units, you know? So I thought, oh, I'll get some advice from John Silva and see what he has to say. And I called him up and we talked and he says to me, you know, can you send me an acetate? And I said, well, okay, you know, I didn't really know what he had in mind, but I sent him the acetate. And three that's days how later, old we are, acetate. <laughs> <laughs> and three days later, you know, Lisa Patrick calls me up, goes, I want to put out this record, no questions asked. And I said, what the hell? Well, I said, we well, got to talk to Tom because he owns the Masters. And that's how that connection happened. The P&D deal. I, I love uh -huh. that. The stuff with, with John Silva, you know, I knew him when he was working at the record store when I was going mm -hmm. to college way before that. He was the guy that actually turned me on to a lot of the Paisley Underground stuff, you know, because I would go in there and he was like, you know, he had heard about those bands. I went down in the summer of 82 and saw uh, Dream Syndicate and the Salvation Army at Al's Bar. And then he, then I came back to San Francisco and told John, you're right. These guys are great, you know, and then he was like, oh, you got to hear Green on Red and he was passing me their EP and. So that, but then later, I, I love telling the story to my to my wife and kid how John Silva asked to manage us and we turned him down. Oh, <laughs> I still remember the dinner we went with Lisa and John down at some restaurant here, and uh, it was like the spring before the record came out, and he wasn't really like obviously who he is now. It was all pre Nirvana yeah. and all that, yeah. and he he had a couple bands. He had Red Cross, I think, maybe in the yeah. in the yeah. three o'clock, and and we were kind of, we already had a manager, and it was you know it was kind of like. You know, I think we're all right. And then, of course, the, our manager like quit a few months later, and a couple of years later, John, you know, John becomes the David Geffen of the nineties. <laughs> yeah, when, when I moved to California in '89, John was selling, still selling records at the uh, record swaps here, and I bought, yeah. I bought my copy of the Sus Suspect <laughs> single there. Jeff and Soraya love all these Paisley Underground connections. You oh, guys, so. yeah. Well, I, I keep yeah, remembering yeah, yeah. that is the show, so I wanted to loop it back in wherever yeah. possible. But that was definitely Good work. for me that. That was the connection with them, um, you know, and, and wanting kind of tying in with the end of the punk thing. It was so obvious that sound to me, because I think a lot of the people of our generation kind of grew up liking like 60s music. I mean, it was like all that stuff is what infused us. But it was, I think, what happened over the course of the 70s made it. I mean, obviously, there was the dolls and Bowie and there was a lot of cool stuff that we were kind of could get pieces of. But even that, I mean, no, nobody was Mick Ronson in my neighborhood. You know, it seemed a little unattainable but then you know the ramones and going to see the zeros you know i thought i could do yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> philosophy was like it was it was an anti-rock star you know i mean it wasn't about being a rock star it's about do it yourself well just we do it yeah. because we don't want to go pay you know x amount of money to go see elton john at a sports arena because you know that's just yeah. trying to make your own thing you know and then once right. we learned like that, like that fourth chord, 
it was yeah. suddenly wow <laughs> <laughs> we could actually make pop music yeah, yeah. Well, about, I, 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 no i was gonna say i love learning that flying color is responsible for grifter getting that frontier distribution deal not american music club Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. You know, he, yeah. he, uh, he blackmailed, I mean, he basically said she, she really liked the AMC too. And he was like, you, you know, you, yeah. you can't, you can't have them without, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. She, she, sorry. She liked flying colors. She, he, they hated AMC to begin with. And it was like, you got to take AMC <laughs> with flying colors. Yeah. Oh shit. I first heard you guys. Cause there was that frontier uh, promo cassette that was half you know, a sampler of you guys and then a yeah, sampler like of AMC on four, the other side. Four and four cassette. Yeah, yeah. And I was blown away by both both bands. Like I got both records immediately. So I, I we had a fun party at the iBeam to release the record. It was like a joint record release party. There's some pictures floating around the internet from I think on the iBeam webpage that night. It was really cool because there's pictures of Jacobson's there and Penelope's there and Jimmy Wilsey and like the whole kind of like the San Francisco a lot of the San Francisco it, it was just it was a great party. It was it was a really good party. It was kind of the big the culmination of that period before we all went on the road and slowly <laughs> splintered. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So the album comes out and, and you guys uh, immediately just hit the road, uh, like headlining uh, clubs or opening Combo. or a little both. Or, yeah. No, no, no. Basically, uh, Lisa Fancher said, "You guys, because I think the record was 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 ready to go by the summer of '87." And she says, "You should wait till September, and the colleges are back in session, and it'll be to your advantage because the DJs at the college radio stations will be the um, there won't be any substitute DJs. They'll be the the ones that are always there." And, and she'll pay to put us on the CMJ sampler. All right. And, um, <laughs> more, more exposure results uh, with the tour, you know? So we, we just had to wait till uh, it was time to go. And we went. Yeah. We, I, we, we did we did a combo. We played like a lot, some opening. We played with the Bodines. There was this tour. During that tour, I remember the Bodines were opening for U2. And then they were doing club dates on the side where we would open for the Bodines. So there was this kind of weird... U2 Bodine's leapfrog thing we did across the south. Um, yeah. There and uh, we we play it was great because we got to play all the cool clubs, you know, the 930 club in DC and uh, I forget where we played in New York. The, 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 well, the first trip, Folk City and Tramps and the Bitter End was kind of cool. Yeah, we did Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. Fitzgerald's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the culmination was opening for Smokey Robinson in Missouli, Missoula, yeah. Montana. <laughs> football stadium. That was a weird one. Yeah, but what? Who, the, uh, what, what go, the, weirdest, go say, the weirdest opening, the weirdest thing we ever did was opening for Timothy Leary. At <laughs> we wanted to ask about that. How yeah. does that happen? You know, I don't know. We just got asked our manager that we kept instead of John Silva got us that great gig. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a there's a marquee shot of Hector and I. I our, our dear friend Bobby Castro, great photographer who passed away a few years back, had, took a picture of Hector and I standing in front of the marquee, and it says Timothy Leary, Flying Color, and Donovan was playing the next night. Wow. So there's this great, wow. and, and, and I, I don't have a copy of the photo, but I would love to get it. Yeah, if I'm Penelope's band was on that bill when we played that night. True. Right? Yeah, I believe that's true. But 
but but anyway, Timothy, he was doing a lecture. He was kind of coming out, and where they were, I think we we were a psychedelic band. We were connected with that whole '60s revival, so they were kind of like put them on. And and I remember Tim coming in the dressing room. He's like, "You guys are great." With this big yeah. smile. Yeah, he said, you remind me of Beatles, and I said, "Well, I don't look like Ringo, but whatever." <laughs> there's, there's no there's no there's no photo there's there's no photo op of you you guys backstage with Timothy Leary. We didn't you know. Have we didn't have cell phones. Yeah, I know. I know. You had a packet camera. Yeah. And, you know, and, so, you know if, 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 if you carried a camera, you're basically officially a photographer back in those days, you know. I used to bring those disposable cameras. I have a, a personal thing. I'm still trying to find photos. There was a club above the, the Mabuhe, the On Broadway, which was yeah, like I'm, an old mm -hmm. theater upstairs. And there was, for several years through the early 80s, just amazing shows. And you can't find anything from there. It's the weirdest thing. Everybody from Iggy Pop to Flipper to, you know, the, my early band, Love Circus Green, all the, some of the Paisley Band, Salvation Arm. Everybody played there. It was an unbelievable room, beautiful. And everybody played there. And there's no pictures because we were having wow. too much fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when does Richard uh, leave the band? It, right before, before the like, tour. Oh, right before the tour. So the record comes out and he says, I'm. Yeah, he, he started working at, uh, 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 in uh, uh, Livermore Labs out in the East County. You know, it's a government contract business. And uh, he wanted to, to not go on the road. And then his high school sweetheart, he started, um, um, renewing the relationship and she moved up to san francisco uh monica um, mona and so that's why he didn't go and the whole story with cbs with chris von schneider was that you know we when we were playing around the city um uh he started going to our gigs uh but the story with chris was that him and four other guys they're originally from syracuse new york and one day they said hey you know this town sucks let's Let's get in the van and move to San Francisco. And they just jumped in the van and came to San Francisco, you know, and they got an apartment in North Beach. And um, they, they were music fanatics, uh, all of them, you know, and they'd go to the gigs. And like, obviously they, they like flying color. And Chris became friends with us. And uh, one day he invited me to his apartment. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll go hang out at your apartment. And they all lived there. All the five Syracuse guys lived there. Bob Newman, he was a, a record file. I'd never seen so many records in the room. The guy had millions of records. And it was Mario Rapowski. Now Mario owns the Makeout Room and he owns the Latin American Club. And They pretty uh, much were the cast of High Fidelity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I hang out with Chris and we're in his room and he whipped out the acoustic guitar, right? And he starts playing every fucking song on the flying color set played live like like perfect and i was like what the hell i mean you know, if there's a fan that's a fan well he, he's you're jumping ahead a little bit too because he oh, he no. walked he he op we opened we're opening for the liars at the berkeley square the night that those guys met us and chris walked into the dressing room all cocky he's like 19 and he's like you guys are great but i should be in your band too wow that was his introduction <laughs> i don't remember myself but but I remember I said, oh, wow, man, that's pretty, 
I mean, I was really impressed by that. And so when the time came that Richard didn't want to play and we had to go on the road and it was sort of an emergency, I said, well, he was the obvious choice, you know? So I, I, I got together with him in North Beach one day. And I said, hey, man, you know, do you want to be in the band? Because this is what's happening. And he jumped right in. Boom. Here, here's know? another little Paisley tie-in. There, the, uh, <laughs> Chuck Prophet from Green on Red had been, was an, a friend of mine. I had gone to college with him and stuff, and we had played in bands to get, you know, little little groups together and and green on red was kind of at a loose ends when all this was their initial push and he was kind of available and so it was kind of like i he came up because he was a great guitar player he wasn't like a the singer songwriter guy he's become he was mostly just a guitar player then but it was really clear hector and chris had been um hanging out a bit and john had gone to high school with chuck so it felt like i remember thinking like it just it's a weird it was a weird dynamic we didn't want it to be three against one like you know mm. kind of my so it was more felt more balanced as well as chris was a brunette that oh. fit that kept our <laughs> beetle thing intact. <laughs> right yeah he fit in really good you know and he's a great songwriter in his own on his own you know he, he right. brought really good tunes too you know and and we all right. got along really good, in, in, in just personality wise and everything. But you know, someday Chris will tell you about Fitzgeralds and what happened in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna message him right after. It's this. definitely um, a private topic for sure. But yeah, hopefully I'm old enough to uh, to hear the story. Um, you might be able to handle it, Ronnie. Hey, get back. <laughs> hey, getting back to the record. You, you so you guys, this your band has three songwriters, and um, pretty much you all write separately. So how? Did you did you decide to evenly distribute the songs on the record? Pretty much. Left, I, I, Tom okay. Allen took the responsibility to pick the songs. He said, I'm I'll, you know, okay. I'll pick give me demos because we were all recording, you know, on cassettes and four-track uh studio uh home recorders and whatever. And then he he actually picked the songs for the first record, you know. I mean, that was the deal. He was gonna pick the songs for the records, and so we just went along with it. Yeah. Okay. Cause cause that can cause bands to uh so yeah, not I mean, it, to, right? to be totally honest, it's probably ultimately what did. I think I think when we initially got together, it was like, boom, we put all these songs together. But there was kind of a team of like Tom and Eric Beckman, our manager, not, you know, not I, I likened it to like REM in the early days with their lawyer and their manager uh, package. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made like a collective thing. And when suddenly we were without a manager and tom it would that it's where it kind of became like just left over to us to figure it out plus richard was it basically the chemistry changed like there was an original right. kind of package and then suddenly it was just like you know the four of us kind of on our own and with a new member trying to figure out how to do it and also we'd been a band long enough i think everybody was feeling at that time like different pools you know, in different directions, you know, I think, as I recall, Hector, you were kind of going to kind of rock more. And I was like, kind of already feeling more of the Americana direction, right, right. like kind of wanting to go that way. And, and then Chris was just trying to find a voice, you know, he was just trying right. to, I mean, that's why he blew up, you know, he, Chris is like George Harrison after the Beatles broke up, you know, he was like sitting on all this stuff. And then he just like, boom, like puts out a bunch of solo records. Yeah. yeah. So, so you split with all these people. Is that after the album runs its course and you, you tour? Well, no, it's in the buildup because yeah. because we were making it. We made the record in like during 86 and it came out at the end of 87. And 
Richard left and we started, the tour started in October of 87 and Richard had left at the beginning of the summer. He had told us like that spring, I think even we can't do it. So I think there, there was actually one show where we played as a five piece where Richard, it was like Chris's introduction and we played like all together at the VIS club or the independent, whatever it became. And then, uh, and, and at the same time when Richard had pulled out is when uh, Eric was kind of feel and it, part of it was because he had less work suddenly frontier was kind of coming in like they were going to be our label and they had an in-house promo department before when we started out our manager Eric was the guy like doing all the management booking the shows and you know making the posters and putting stuff out and then when frontier came in there was kind of this illusion that we were going to be kind of more taken care of and there was less of a role for him so that's where Eric was kind of going oh, where do I fit into this now so that's where we where he kind of fell out of the picture and went on to become an academy award-winning film distributor <laughs> <laughs> i love all these successful people surround you know yeah. thread their way through your story yeah not that you got not that you're not but you know what i'm saying. i'm i'm happy I'm to, i i look back on it and and it's like it's it's so great i i i think of all the stuff that's happened you know opening for Smokey robinson I got to meet yeah. Brian Wilson, you know, I mean, all this stuff, whatever, all this, all the crazy stuff that happens in life and in my life and music, it's been totally worth it. I mean, for me, the, the big one for me was opening up for the ventures at the IB. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. That was <laughs> a big part of my learning how to play instrument, you know. Uh, yeah. how, how'd you guys go over with that Smokey Robinson crowd? Oh, we were the opening, eh? <laughs> yeah. we were in Missoula, Montana, and it was in the football field. Uh, we were friends with the uh, entertainment director, uh, Eric Jacobs, I think was his name, wasn't it? Cushman, Dale? Eric Cushman. Cushman, yeah, and uh, and and the original really, manager for Green River. Yeah, and and he really hmm. liked us when when we were doing that six week tour, um, promoting the record, and we ended up playing in Missoula. Uh, at a Mexican restaurant after it closed, it became a club. And then, you know, we just got along with them really great. And um, if you get, if you get any, 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 any really good gigs uh, through the university, because he was entertainment director for the University of Missoula, Montana, I said to him, if you get any really great gigs, why, can you put us on, you know? And he says, well, I got Roy Orbison coming in town. I said, put us on. Oh, I got Roy <laughs> Oh, I got it. And then finally, we ended up with Smokey Robinson. And that was great, too. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for years till I found you. Waited for hours till I spoke to you. Yes, I'm lonely. Of course, I'm afraid. Now that I found you, don't know what to say. As the time I'm saved. You guys opened up for some some of my favorite artists. You also opened up for Ten Thousand Maniacs, Camper Van Beethoven, Alex Chilton. How are okay. how are those gigs? The, the Alex Chilton one was cool because it was, um, you know, when I I had just discovered him like in '84 or something. I moved into the apartment with John and his older brother at Radio City, and I'd always like heard about it, but suddenly there's a vinyl copy of Radio City, and I'm like, oh my fucking god! What? I mean, it played it for days, and then I remember like telling Hector. Hector knew about it. And it was, we started playing September Girl. So it was, whatever yeah, yeah. that became, it was when, and, and at that time, it's when Alex was trimming trees still in, in 
New Orleans. He was kind of at a low ebb. You know, he'd done his his cramp stuff in the city. He was definitely at a low ebb. So when we saw him coming to play at Berkeley Square, like in summer of 85, I think, was like we want that was basically his another one of his re-entries into like being who he became with the whole indie scene right. kind of early on in that and we, we jumped on that and it was so cool i still remember them pulling up in their station wagon and opening the doors and all this pot smoke blowing out of the <laughs> station wagon with doug and renee and and him and it was really great really cool remember that that he ended up borrowing your guitar at the ivy remember he broke a string or something yeah you know what's neat he had he had a moserite that was signed by all the ventures <clears throat> wow. it's kind of a circular thing so wow. he's playing this moserite signed by all the ventures but it wouldn't stay in tune so he was playing the I-beam like the next night and wanted to borrow my guitar or whatever. It's like, sure. So you guys had a good experience with Alex Chilton. I've heard different stories with Alex Chilton. Yeah, they, they were really nice to us. I still remember there was a question about a lyric in September Girls that Hector and I had that he answered quite sincerely when we asked him about that. Nice, nice. It was, I think it was like, what was it? I, 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 I was your butch. And you were touched. Oh, yeah. And Hector yeah, yeah. thought it was, I was sure bushed, like tired. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But we straightened that out. He, and he was totally cool about it. And the 10,000 Maniacs and Camper gig? 10,000 Maniacs. I remember Natalie Merchant dancing our entire sound check on the empty floor of the club. She was very nice. I have memories of that. And I thought she was such a babe back then. I, I was kind of at odds for her. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then Camper? Camper was, you know, we saw them. They Because I, I actually, in my band, Love Circus, had played with Box of Laughs oh. several times. They were oh. like the pre-Camper band. Right. Um, which was like several, you know, it was David Lowry and Victor and uh, Chris Mala was the drummer. They were, it was basically the least four of them. And so we, I kind of knew them via that. And then I remember seeing them. There was a great club called the VIS Club, which became the independent. Okay. And now it's the or it, it, the kennel club and then the independent right. and they were just great it was like a whole new sound it was like oh my god these guys are cool and they they had a buzz going and so right away we're, we started promoting our own shows eric our manager there was a place the farm that held probably like 500 people a big barn kind of on the edge of the mission and we started promoting shows and it was kind of like we'll, we'll let's do a gig with them and we'll, we put together like kind of a co-headliner thing with them and like you know sold it out it was kind of it was nice good good time and then and then they just kept blowing up very cool yeah we did want to talk about the video so tom uh shared the video for dear friend on youtube so you guys can find that video yep. there and soraya found an interesting quote that richard yeah. said about about the video Soraya, you want to share that yeah so <laughs> but he's uh, not in it <laughs> yeah yeah and he addresses that he says um uh, someone asked, someone mentioned, you know, I think Richard quit the band before. And he says, and you're right. I quit the band right before the video was filmed. Had I known that videos would become nearly immortal thanks to the internet, I would have probably hung around a bit longer. <laughs> Back then, we considered it somewhat of a joke to be on MTV Midnight Rotation. It absolutely was. I remember distinctly when they wanted us to do that video, it was still not cool. I remember, th I mean, I was, you know, the replacements did that one where they had to, or it's just the turntable and his hand smoking right. a cigarette. We used to, I remember distinctly saying like, who wants to fucking look at a song? I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I don't care what it looks like. 
And, and it was part of the package at that point. It was just happening. And I remember somehow Frontier knew those guys and they had a little budget and we like ran around San Francisco and they, we had nothing to do with it. They just like shot video and made that thing. So I'm glad that it exists. So there's some record of it, but yeah, it was nothing. It was totally driven artistically by other people. Yeah, it by somebody else. And we just- who's, the, who's the girl that walks past all you guys? Yeah. Those moody shots? She was a UC Berkeley dance student that they uh, found somehow. And I think uh, we all kind of okay. had a crush on her. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It, it turned out she was a substitute because I think there was somebody, another girl that was supposed to be there and couldn't make it. And so they sent this girl that's on the video. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've often wondered where she is. Can we find her? <laughs> you know, for the next reunion gig. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> nice. twirl around. Nice. <laughs> She'll find this podcast, no doubt. Um, <laughs> pr- prospective second album. I know you guys made some demos. So, did Frontier want to make a second record? Or yes, they you did. said you were trying to regroup and find yourselves at this point. Um, sorry, uh, they did want to make a second record. You know. Yeah, yeah, they, I think they were all game. It was just like we, you know, the band basically broke up. You know, we were trying okay. to do it. I mean, I'll, I'll let Hector tell his side of it. You go ahead, Hector, you tell your side. <laughs> well, honestly, yeah, he, uh, Lisa was waiting for a second uh, recording. And uh, we ended up letting Tom pick the song again. And then... I think there was just a disagreement on the song list and who was getting how many. And so in the end, we just kind of, I became dissatisfied with the whole thing. I didn't feel like I was having any fun anymore. It was too much uh, friction. And I just felt like, you know, I don't want to really continue. And I just stepped away, you know, that's basically what I did. I know the rest of the guys kept it going for a while, but Dale can take it from there. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think Hector hit it right on the head. And for for the rest of us, it was so hard. Like, I kind of feel, because we tried to go on for like another, we kept recording, like Tom kept recording us and we were trying to find the songs. But without Hector, it was like losing the center of balance. So I was kind of spinning off in my world, like stylistically. And Chris was like feeling frustrated because his songs weren't like measuring up to Tom's bar or whatever so we were kind of it just kind of started it lost its whatever that it's like a planets and they need like a something to, to orbit you know you need a center of gravity and it just kind of all spun off and i think like on our end i think i kind of regret like trying to carry it on for another year or so only but it was like because we put so much into it it was so frustrating like you put this record out and we toured all this stuff he's kind of like we're getting a name for ourselves and it was like you know i, I wasn't ready myself to be a solo artist you know, I really like the idea of being in a band, you know, I mean, years later when I went made ostensibly two solo albums, I still made a, a band name, that map of Wyoming stuff that I did. Great. I, mean, I, I always liked kind of the mystery of bands. Um, that, I was like that better. So, yeah, I think we just, yeah, we, we spun out. We kind of, uh, well, it, it's so common. It's like, you know, a marriage or something. Sometimes they just don't work out. I tell you, the nice no, part is, is though it we've really gotten back together for the kids, and it feels nice when we hang out now. We're still family. <laughs> oh yeah, nice. that's that's what I'm saying. You know, I mean, it doesn't change how we feel for each other. Uh, we also were a lot younger, and we had you know certain uh, goals, and maybe we're we're all we were all just a little more intense within ourselves to want to 
make things happen in a certain way. You know, we all kind of maybe had our own <laughs> idea of how things should go. But at, with time, it goes by, you know, we got together and, and, and reunited a few times here and there. And it's been really great. And it's really been a lot of fun. And it's and why not? I mean, if we can do it, we'll, we'll do it whenever it can happen, you know. We did a memorial show for um, Tom Mallon, or not a memorial, he was still alive. When Tom Mallon first got cancer, we, we did a couple shows in 2013, yeah, I think 2013. it was, and, and mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was like riding a bike. It was kind of cool. I mean, it definitely, it was, it was um, easy. Like it came back really quick and the energy, it felt good. It was really nice. I think the only difference is, is like at this juncture in the music business and stuff, it's like, what do you do with that? It's kind of like, okay, it's cool. We're not really big enough to like stage a major reunion tour. We're kind of in that weird little niche, but, but at the same time, like I remember a month after that reunion, we did a gig opening for the three o'clock there, you know, cause we had done the show at the great American music hall and then for Tom, the benefit. And then the three o'clock happened to be doing a reunion two shows at the same time they were going to play Coachella or something. <coughs> so they were playing the next month. And, and Don Holiday got on the phone with Silva, who was still managing the three o'clock, I guess. And, and, and it was like, what do you think playing color open? And he was like, yeah, it sounds great. And, and it was, it was kind of cool, like playing and people showing up and seeing him sing the song. So we definitely had an impact. There was definitely fans that got it, but it's like, we're in that weird space where is it big enough to like really take, you know, you know, take it further than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say yes. And I would also say you could do an archival, uh, release of the unreleased demos yeah. just as a fan i'm just saying yeah um, well, one thing i had thought it, it related to that i'll put it out there the one thing i had thought about is it's interesting because of the records that hector did his solo chris's very first record yeah. even my map of wyoming stuff there's a few songs out of each of those that in one that actually come from flying color like, you know, like, heck, they're on, you know, so it's part of me has thought about you could probably do a cool reissue. that's a collection of like things that are actually of the period that are like outtakes or whatever, combined with like a sampler of our subsequent projects that never really got heard that much would probably make a pretty cool record. And then we follow up with the, the new record. <laughs> yes, there you Perfect. Yes. You wet the appetite. Yeah. Get it. Yeah, exactly. So I've been one. Hector, so you leave the band and then you put out the solo album. Like, so were those written for Flying Color? Those songs? Well, the, the, that that record came out in '88. Flying Color record came out in '87. Um, yeah. Basically, that record got recorded because Dave Amos didn't get Flying Color to make an album, so he offered me the album. And yeah, because. John and Richard are on that record, along with a few other friends of mine playing on that on that record, you know. But yeah, it's kind of sort of like almost like uh, the melanoma on the flying color LP. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there but there's like songs on that, like Dog in the Rain. Dog in the Rain was one of the first songs that I walked into. That was like that that was one that was a really early song that just didn't make the album. 
that ended oh, yeah. up on Hector Sola record five years later, four years later. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, that that record came out fairly soon after after you know the flying color stuff, but um, um, but I've always written songs. I've, I I still do. I actually, matter of fact, I'm gonna do a, a, a unashamed uh, plug. This record's coming out <laughs> in October. My new solo record. Nice. Uh, on nice. records, and uh, it's already. Um, that's my test pressing right now, but October they'll be out, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. But I've always written songs, you know. I've always been a songwriter type of guy, and you gotta you gotta make an effort to write good songs. That's for sure, you know. But uh, anyways, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. It's funny you guys break up, and then Frontier gets that deal with RCA, right? Like. In that period after <laughs> after Hector had left, you know, we did a, a, a demo for RCA and it was like still that was one of the reasons we didn't okay. break up because it was like suddenly there's this stuff going. How do you walk away from that? It's like, really? RCA is interested. One, one of those songs, right. uh, it's called Take It For A Ride. That was like part of one of mine that was part of the end of like we played it when we were touring. I, there's some I can't remember it's um, if it's a bucket full of brains compilation. I think it ended up on there's a, a flying color song that's on a that, that and that was basically the RCA demo mm. that came from. Oh, that's that, that, that's the only thing I know that came out with the name flying color on it. That's not Hector that Hector's not on. Oh, wow. And I feel guilty about that a little bit, Hector. I'm sorry, but we just didn't know what to do. With that <laughs> but you've put up with Javier for all these years. So I'm not worried. <laughs> 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 Um, I ended up joining MCM and the Monster soon after Flying um, Color. That was this crazy rap rock band that that was basically my roommates on Webster Street. We, the four of us guys, lived on uh, this two-story Victorian house, and I was kind of like the monkeys, but you know, with rap oh. <laughs> together. Yeah. But we got this band. But you know who who gave birth to MCM and the Monster? It was Flying Color because Flying Color was playing the farewell gig. Or the VIS club when it was shutting down, and um, my roommate Miles, who was the rapper kid, said, "Hey, can I get up and do a couple of numbers at the farewell gig?" And I said, "Well, of course, why not?" And then Gary, who was the lead guitar player who lived in the house too, he goes, "Well, can I get up there and play a guitar?" I said, "Well, sure, why not?" So in in, in actuality, Flying Color gave birth to MTM and the Monster. You know, it was kind of like FC oh. Run DMC. Yeah. <laughs> Little Beastie Boys in there. I I I, I loved it. We, I think we did some ACDC songs too. It yeah, was yeah. it was quite a night. Yeah, fun. and uh, you know that band really took off like a runaway train because it was the right time for that kind of music and 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 just everywhere. I mean, there was always like a lot of people, you know. But I, I but like I've always been flexible with with styles, and so I've never really like just said I'm just going to do this type of sound, you know. I'm like always been because music is a giant family i mean you've got jazz and country and rock and pop and bluegrass whatever but it's all coming out of the same bucket you know the notes you just decide what you want to <laughs> I, I, hector yeah. is definitely an equal opportunity employer i'll give him that he'll play anything <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about the cd reissue that came out in 96 on munster did did munster approach you guys and say that they wanted to release this reissue on cd yeah, because what happened was the, the Zeros put out um, uh, Knocking Me Dead in 1995 on Monster Records through Gasatanka Records, which was Bill Bartell, 
who had the, all yep. the connections. And I just want to say this here on air while we're talking that the Zeros owe Bill Bartell their left and their right nuts, every band member, because Bill did a lot for the Zeros. And wow. he in peace, but he really, he really put himself out there for us. And nothing would happen without him, you know, from 1992 onward because he really was the connection for a lot of really great things for the zero. Wow. But yeah, um, he, he basically, um, when the zeros went to Spain in 95, and I met Inigo Munster, owner of Munster Records, he said, I would love to put out the Flying Color record. And I was really surprised by that, you know, because I was like, oh, really? I, people know about Flying Color in Spain? And I guess, you know, it got out there. So um, I said, yeah. well, you're going to have to talk to Tom about it. And um, later that year, he came, he went to San Francisco for vacation. And I said, okay, well, you know, I think I called Tom ahead of time. I said, hey, Inigo's coming in from Munster Records and uh, he'd love to talk to you about reissuing the, the, the recordings, you know, on CD. And that's how that connection happened. Nice. You know? And you threw yeah. on and a couple of bonus tracks. Oh yeah, yeah, threw some bonus tracks. And then I, 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 I wanted to have, in the in the line notes in the booklet to have not only just uh chris but richard too you know because i mean everybody was a big part of that yeah, yeah. yeah that was um yeah. That, that those extra songs on there are things from the original demo tape that we did with tom nice so yeah. we for they were they were basically okay. like the extras from the single that went yeah. on there you okay. know in spain it's interesting because we keep there's been this idea of touring spain that keeps coming up we definitely have this fan base over there it's just the it's just never quite come together it keeps getting talked about and you know there's been some there's some festivals and because there's a guy in england that's been talking to us about doing it so i who knows what's going to happen there yeah. our publishing we it could have figure out though tom I, our, our, the Flying Color Publishing, since Tom died, it was like Grifter Records had it. But Tom did a, a deal with um, uh, Bug Music back in the day to do the to administer the publishing. And then somewhere along the line, after the band broke up, uh, uh, BMG sucked up Bug. But they kind of like sucked it up as in like they own it or something. And all they ever had was the rights to administer it. But because Tom has passed away and he wasn't married, like I know is supposed to, it, it's kind of this like project that's like on a back burner to like try and untangle all that. I've made a couple of phone calls, but I mean, yeah. have you tried calling BMG? <laughs> no, I was going to say, you call BMG and say, uh, yeah, I'm asking about the flying color. Uh, I've actually done yeah, it. I, it's it's going to be hard. I, to... I did make some foray <laughs> a couple of years back. I made some phone calls and kind of got into it, but it all kind of went back to Tom's domestic partner and trying her to find their original contracts that he signed with bug it, it's just yeah, right it's a whole thing call john silva he'll he'll, he'll get <laughs> there great you know, idea you know i love it <laughs> yeah that, yes <laughs> that's it Jenner. seriously yeah yeah <laughs> he's not doing anything else <laughs> no 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 they, they will take his phone yeah. call yeah so
Tom mentions on the uh, when he shared the the dear friend video, he mentioned that the masters for the Flying Color album were destroyed in the Bayview. Yes, fire. he he had a library of everything, you know, all the big tapes or whatever. And I had a wood shop with lots of space. And when he was shutting down his studio, he was trying to find homes for all this stuff. I mean, we had, you know, two, it's like, you know, two inch and one inch tapes, big stacks of them. And plus there was all the stuff that he and I had continued to work on after, you know, because we kind of went through this, this, this period where after Flying Color broke up, John and Chris and I continued as a trio recording for months for, for free in Tom's studio, kind of exploring what we were going to do. And then finally, Chris throw in the towel. And then it was just Tom and I. Tom and I went on for another couple of years of like, I just, it was like a hobby. He, he liked me and we, I, we liked recording me for free. We would just do stuff. So there's kind of all this oddball recordings and a lot of tape. And a lot of it was stored at, the, at that, at my wood shop, which subsequently, thanks to some marijuana growers, down the block that kept taking the fuses out of the fuse box and replacing them with rebar basically they turned the building into a toaster and uh oh. everything went up but i did i saved i've got a few things a few a few tapes survived but most of it you know luckily all the important stuff has already exists you know we, we can do you know we don't need to go back and remix anything hmm. right right so so, so Dale, you took a few few years off, and then you you came back, and you you, you mentioned them as solo albums, but the map of Wyoming. Stuff. That well, the, it's funny uh, because the the Spanish reissue was a, was definitely kind of gasoline for me because I was kind of, right at the same time I started because I took a break after that period of work right, working with Tom just myself. I kind of lost the plot, and then I fell head over heels in love with this woman, and ended up like traveling in Mexico and learning Spanish, and just I kind of just went to another world for a while i started bubbling up i was writing songs again and that right about the time i'm like writing these songs chris calls me up and says hey will you help me like expand my home studio we built a new studio and then like a couple weeks later hector calls and goes hey these guys want to put out a reissue and, and basically there was all these like sparks going off going music is alive you should do music again and so it, it kind of propelled me in that period to to make those records Nice. Great name for a band, Map of Wyoming. I love that name. You, you know, I, I, I'm, I differ with you. I'm not sure that it is. I just, it was so random. I had a gig <laughs> before I had a name. And then my friend Marty, who ran the club, the makeout room, said, I need a name. We can't just keep putting up Dale, Chris, and John on the marquee. And, and I said, Map of Wyoming, kind of drunken. And then only later, after my mother passed away, that she was born in Wyoming and I started getting into this ancestry stuff and I can't believe the shit I have found out about my family. And then I realized, Oh, maybe that's what it was about. I was making a map of Wyoming. Who knows? Oh, I love the title myself or the, the band name. Okay. I like the maps. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we did want to mention that a lot of people really, really like this record. In fact, um, John Borak listed it as number 70 on his 200 top power pop albums. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I reached out to John just earlier today and asked him if there's anything that he needed to know. And he said, I have three questions, some of which we've already talked about. He's like, when is that follow-up coming out? Is there anything left that's been unreleased? And I think we've kind of covered that. And he said, the main thing I need to know is when is the vinyl reissue? Now that vinyl is a thing again, it needs right. to be, re it's not that easy to find this record. No. Um, and yeah. in the States at least. 
No, you, you can only find it really on YouTube. There's people that are like doing these pirate video things. There's no official, and it's kind of ties in with the publishing. Like it's hard, we, you know, spot up, because we don't want it on spot, you know, if you don't, we need to reclaim the publishing. <laughs> Here's another silly story. You know, Tom actually set up Flying Color Music that was supposed to be our joint publishing company, but they never finished the paperwork. But on, I found on BMG, I think I told you this, Hector, on the BMG, or I'm sorry, on the Bug Music contract, I found there is this, he registered, but we, nev we never registered it. <clears throat> so it never got created, but there's like this slot to be filled. There's just some paperwork that needs to be done. So if somehow we could get it back, then then it would be more interesting perhaps to like, you know, put it out as something that is we there, own as a group. Is there any interest in that from the band? You know, Pat Thomas, who you know, a few years back, because he was doing those nice things with Omnivore. And I remember asking him because I thought they were kind of beautiful packaging. And I don't know who his partners are. They were kind of like, almost, you know, it's like I said, we're not quite like a big enough thing to make it like an obvious go to. I mean, maybe now that they've finished all the big stuff, they're ready for us. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but they, they, I, it would be nice to, you know, I would like that some vinyl. But I always thought it would be cool to do the original record. And then, as I said, like a bonus record that's a mix of like kind of a sampler of some of the solo stuff that happened after and some demos or odd takes. There's like a version of Dear Friend that has Dave Chef playing drum, the drummer from Translator, when mm. we were trying to cut the record. Mm -hmm. And I think that tape survived. I, I got to go, Nancy, Tom's ex-partner, when the fire happened from the pile of tapes, uh, they were mostly burned. There was a few that were kind of singed. And I kept thinking, oh, yeah, they have to bake old tapes anyway. Maybe they're pre-baked. So I saved them and, and took them to, um, they're in Nancy's basement. But anyway, there's a version where Dave Chef, because he was trying to, we were trying to get a great version. It was kind of like Eric Jacobson bringing Keltner in to play drums on Isaacs. Can we up the bar a little bit? So Tom brought in yeah. Dave Chef to kind of kick John's ass. And then a week later, Tom invites John back down to do it again. And then John kicked Dave's ass and Tom was like, oh, that was what I planned the whole time. I have wow. no idea. What I was but he said that that was his ultimate plan. There was no way there was going to be another drummer on our record. He just needed to motivate him. Nice. Nice. And then Larry Decker from Translator ends up in your band, Dale. Yeah. It's a small world. Yep. 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 Sweet yeah. man. It's all connected. Larry Decker. Yeah. No, no. But both of those guys. Yeah. All the, all the Translator guys, right? Yeah, all four of them. So yeah, well, hopefully, you know, little things like this, we just keep Great. throwing logs on the fire. Maybe somebody will be interested in that uh, reissue. Who who do you guys recommend talking to down there in Southern California? You're the industry center, right? Just up here in San Francisco with these techies. Ronnie, Ronnie, any thoughts? <laughs> Jeff, I, I would. Yeah, no. Um, well, I'm tight. I'm tight. I'm tight with. Um, I mean, I'm the board that has done our our, our must reissues and. Um, Maybe you can so give them a second friend, run by. Um, give give them a second push. I can, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I can, uh, I can pitch you. They they get pitched on like by basically everybody these days. I gotta say, they being one of the few quality labels around, like they they turn down stuff all the time. I'm not yeah. saying they will turn this down. No, but, but well, now that the zeros, worth, hey, now that the all they can say is no, right? It's worth a pitch. No, and now so. that the zeros are getting ready to blow up again with this major motion picture, we can maybe piggyback on that, right? <laughs> right when's that coming uh, out hector I, supposed to be at the end of this year it's already no. years i think yeah very cool guys i sat down for an interview with them i talked a lot about bill bartell hector yeah um, right, right yeah yeah giving him credit yeah 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 They're really really awesome so. people you know?
Victor, before we say goodbye, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, the documentary? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, let's go back to December 2015. So this fella, Abe Levi, wanted to make a movie of the Zeros, kind of like that Runaways movie that came out with the script, actors, and the whole bit. Oh, yeah. And I, a feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not every day somebody offers to make a movie of your band, so... <laughs> Him and, and and we and and we all agreed to do it and uh, we started working with him um he wrote a first rough draft script uh, he told us any revisions please do them I'll, I'll include them in the next draft and uh we were a year and a half into the project and uh, mr javier escobedo decided he didn't want to do it so really like really but whatever you know and so that was the end of that i'm upset about that um another year goes by or two years go by and suddenly I start hearing through the grapevine, oh, there's two documentaries getting made and, and there's these guys and they're interviewing Baba and they're interviewing Javier and they're interviewing Baba's dad and all these other people. Like, <laughs> kind of like sort of like the, comp uh, you know, uh, the making up for the first thing, you know, that, that he blew out of the water. I thought, I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't really interested at the beginning because I thought this sounds almost like, uh, well, here's your, you know, compensation for for the other thing you know the other film but um eventually i talked to mike weber i talked to anthony ledesic and of course yeah i said you know these guys are really really nice and really cool guys and hey, let's do this you know i mean why wouldn't i do it anyways it's about my band you know and so yeah <laughs> yeah together with them and we we did the interviews robert did the interviews uh, mario scovedo did the interviews i mean they interviewed a lot of people and I think the, Jane Wheatley and who knows how many other rock star punker people. And they interviewed, of course, you, Ronnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, in not the, I'm not in that kind of company, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do a music video or any kind of documentary now without Ronnie. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I got to say that the trailer, which is not public, but the tra Anthony showed me the trailer when he filmed it. It's, it's, it's great. It looks great. Like Professional it's you know top of the line yeah absolutely one, it was really cut together well so one thing i really exciting i specified to to anthony i said if you can get the linda lindas on this documentary <laughs> it would be really great because yeah. uh it, it puts the whole place into a more contemporary space and besides yeah. passing the torch you know these kids are amazing i've seen them already a few times and i mean the drummer's only 11 years old for crying out loud <laughs> you know it's insane yeah oh yeah Hector Hector took me in to see them up here. Uh, got me. They did a show here recently at the Art and the SF yeah. Moment. It was fabulous. I I just love like the the history here. Like when we did the benefit for Tom, Peter Case got up and sang with it. We did Shake Some Action, and Peter Case got up with Prairie Prince from the Tubes on drums. But and I was looking across, and you know, because Hector's only a year older than me or something but but it, it it goes so far deep into the whole punk rock thing i'm looking over there and thinking of like peter and they were doing shows together in the late 70s you know with right. the nerves and the zeros and 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 this this continuum it's so cool of all the people because hector was like 14 at that time yeah so yeah that's why yep but it's just yeah it's, it's really cool the history of all these guys and it's how it's all connected straight through people still doing it and loving it yeah you know i mean definitely back to the lindas to me i feel like they're the continuation of of all of this is happening because they definitely are you know they're 
they're they're kids, but their dad, Martin Wong, has definitely yeah. uh, shifted them in the right direction with with the music that he's influencing them with and and what they're doing. I mean, it's pretty amazing, really. But uh, yeah, yeah, best, you know? yeah. You are to them what Elvis was to you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there's a great photo, not to talk about me, you guys, again, but uh, there's a great photo of uh, the Muffs playing in 2015, and the Linda Lindas, as little girls, are dancing in the background. They're visible. Yeah. Because Martin's an old friend in of ours. In 2015, so. they must have been like five. Yeah, no, no, they're, they're really young, and they have like, like head, not headphones, but the noise reduction, <laughs> headphone-looking things on, and um, cool. yeah, it's a really amazing, it's amazing they were captured they weren't supposed to be captured in that photo, but they're captured. It's really proud of that. So, yeah. Right. Ronnie, we wanted to thank you for bringing up this idea. It was all your idea to bring Flying Color on. And thank you guys Thanks, for Ryan. for joining us. And uh, Dale, I thank you for interrupting your family barbecue to oh, no, no. I'm come fine. downstairs and talk with us for a little bit. We appreciate it. But we wanted to let Sorry. you get back and get, get some food while it's still warm. Sorry we couldn't do more Paisley. I realize that's the connection <laughs> of your show, but there is a strong connection there underneath it all. No, you worked in a lot of Paisley, Dale. You did very yes, well done. Very much so. I did my best. So. <laughs> See you on the Fourth of July, Hector. Are you going to go? I'm going to try and pop by. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I got I'm double booked, but I'm also. I got to get my kid in the pool anyway. Yeah, there's a pool and jacuzzi there. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and hopefully we'll see you down there. We, we've talked about doing some other reunion shows and like the idea of doing it down south would be great. We've, we've been doing them up in Northern California. We definitely have like, you know, people down there that would come out. We'd love to see that. So hopefully we'll get it to happen. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate your interest, in everybody. All right. Thank you guys so much for yep. coming. Thank you, Dale. Yep. Thank, thank you, Hector. Thank you, Hector. Thank you. See you, too. All right. Dale's still there. No. There he's gone. Okay, now we can talk. <laughs> Ronnie, this was this was a fantastic topic. And Jeff and I were talking right before we started. We learned some really, really cool things about the band. So we were anxious to talk to them. These guys are fantastic. Yeah, no, they they both love to talk. So it made it a lot easier. I know. So uh I, I appreciate I've been you don't know Soraya, but I've been leaning on Jeff to do do uh do this band for years, literally, literally. years. Yeah. So literally years, just because I want to know whenever I'm pushing a, a band on you guys, it's because I want to know stuff. It's because I've been a fan all these years and, and, you know, and I didn't know any of this stuff. And I'm, God, they're so, 
they're very cool. It's good to know that everybody, you know, they're still good yeah. friends and talking about barbecuing in a week and, you know, uh, still in the game. You know what I mean? Hector still playing and all that. And yeah. So thank you. No, thank you. I, I mean, the part of the story that to me was fascinating is you get this, you get a ton of traction, you get this single and like the movement from Cryptovision to Grifter to, to Frontier. And then one album comes out that people still love, no matter where I went yeah. looking for information, fans were like, this is an album that everybody needs to hear. It still sounds fresh. It still sounds good. And I'm glad they told their story and told us what happened because. Yeah, there, there was a lot. There was a lot in that story. Like, it, you know what I mean? I, I, I knew him as a band. Of course, I knew Hector's, the you know, zeros. zeros and stuff. But, um, you know, I, all, all I knew is, yeah, they made an album and a single and they went away and, you know, but there's a lot of, there were a lot of moving parts in there. I loved it. I got to ask you, Ronnie, since you're the, you're such a fan of this band and this album, what's your favorite track from this album? Yeah, um, it's the second one. It doesn't matter, which is a Richard song. Um, but dear friend, um, everybody said it is pretty much the defining song, right, of the band. Like both those songs, like I think, define Flying Color Sound. Just this, like, this moody, um, very melodic, um, right? You know, music. It's it, it, it's timeless. It really is. Like. Um, and that's why I was a fan, instant fan back then, and why it had stayed with me for, you know, 35, 30, 30, whatever year, 32 years, 33. Yeah. I, I'm not going to do the math. Yeah, obviously. But <laughs> I like Hector's Through Different Eyes. It's, it's got that Southern country rock feel to it. I, I've never heard the Guadalcanal diary connection. I was telling Soraya when I, when I first heard this record, and thank you to you, Ronnie, because I, I didn't know this record um, in the 80s. So yeah. um, it was because of you that I started listening to this. And uh, the first thing that popped up to me was Wire Train. So I was I was interested yeah. in that connection. Um, but yeah, through different eyes, it's got some the country feel with, I don't know, the slide or lap yeah. steel or whatever's going on. So I was really curious what they were listening to at the time when they were recording this, because uh, that's got a really cool feel to it, that tune. Yeah, yeah, no, Hector's Hector's songs really like offset the mood. I hate to say moody again, the moodiness of the other two songwriters, right? Hector's songs are a little more upbeat. Um, that song, Believe, Believe, um, you know, so it really worked. I mean, uh, I, we kind of talked about there, a band with three songwriters uh, that doesn't always work. And uh, as we see, it didn't work for long, but yeah. um, it definitely worked on this on this record. Matt so, Pucci likes to tell us a band with three songwriters won't last. So, so <laughs> that's, yep, that's what yep. he tells. Soraya, what's your favorite? Believe, okay. believe right now is my oh, nice. is go to. Awesome. Very nice. cool. Nice. You, after I hear uh, Jeff's album a thousand times more, I'll probably have a different. <laughs> like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to use a cliche, right? You can pick any yeah. song. That's why yeah. that's why I really like what Hector said at the beginning. He said, when we got together, it was there need to be good songs and we have to I wrote it down. Hold on. Hold on, because I'm I'm like that. Yes. He said, he said um, 
the understanding between us all was that the songs have to be good and we have to practice a lot. And so I just yeah. love that thought. Like, and then when you hear Dale talk about it, like I had, you know, hey, yeah, join the band. And if you have any good songs, and then boom, you started hearing about, oh, uh, Echo Head songs. And, you know, it just seemed to just gel. And they all were yeah, each, it, you know, equally good writers. Yeah. Well, as they said, they, they, they had that good producer and Tom Mallon, I hope I'm not mispronouncing Tom Allen. And like, as they said, picking the songs and producing, you know, making those production choices the the acoustic guitar solos and stuff that are on the Very record. Cool. And, um, you know, and as they said, it kind of fell apart after they lost, Yeah. you know, after the band members started drifting off and the lost, lost, uh, their manager and all that and uh you know sometimes bands are, are sometimes it's like that with a band you're just you're the in in whatever moment it is it happens everything aligns at that moment it's here it's gone and some bands last brief like that and some bands continue and yeah i'm glad that we have a record to document that time yes I know. Imagine all the bands back then that didn't get to make a record or made one like one single, you know, or yeah. And they mentioned, but I'm glad they mentioned Bucket Full of Brains because they, 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 Bucket Full of Brains is very nice to fly in color. Um, I yeah. still love that magazine. Yeah. Um, you probably did too, yeah. Jeff. But yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Eh, it was just a great era. It really was. And they're on the tail end of that era, right? 87. That's like, mm -hmm. that's late in the game for, for um, that kind of music, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. So a couple years late, um, right? A couple years late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The golden age. I always kind of cut off the golden age of like 86. Um <laughs> it feels so weird to say, but it's true, you know, the golden yeah. age, because you know, just as Dale kind of mentioned it with you know the anecdote about John Silva, you know, uh, we have yeah. this moment, we turn him down, and then boom, the 90s just like changed his, <laughs> his trajectory, but it also changed, you know, you're right, he had this completely new era ushered in of music so yeah you're yeah, right yeah. feels weird well, to say also as they talk about the production on the drum sound like production change in the mid in the mid 80s like yeah everybody every, everybody bob dylan everybody made an 80s sounding record around 85 86 like with fake drums and ramones mm -hmm. made one you know what i mean like um yeah subterranean jungle like it's got great songs but the drum it's all triggered drum yeah. stuff um and now that you listen, now when you listen to it, you're going to notice because I brought it up. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. How cool anyway. is that? I, I like hearing about all their new projects and yeah. Zero's documentary. And come on, quote of the, one of the quotes, best quotes ever. The Zero's owe Bill Bartell their left and right nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bill Bartell did so much for them. And I think we keep hearing this. Jeff, I think this is why we were so fascinated with Bill Bartell. He's a part of so many different uh, bands, trajectories, and stories. It's just neat to hear. Yeah, absolutely. He would make things happen. So he, you know, I hate to call him a manager for the Zeros, but he basically was. Like he got them motivated, got them in the studio, produced that record they made. You know, they put out the compilation record on Bump, and then they did started doing the reunion stuff, and um, and then Bill got them. You know, produced the full-length record they made, which is good. Bill understands the band. He uses connections. You know, Bill Bill had connections all over the world. So he got them touring Spain and stuff. That's yeah, as Hector said, that's all Bill. Like that's that's not 
Yeah. That's another documentary I'm really looking forward to, the Bill Bartell documentary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know what to say, hopefully. Yeah. I I, I, I hate to say I, 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 I've been involved in a few documentaries that like have not come out um, and ones that have never come out at this point. And it's just, I hope it gets done. Yes, that's um, true. But it's in good hands with Dave Markey and, and Brian. Yeah. Uh, they should do. Dave knows how to get something done, so it yeah, should. should. Oh, these guys! These guys were great. I really hope. I really hope they do some shows down here because I'd love to see them. And yeah, now that, that I think agreeable. about it, I saw them. If I'm right, Flying Color was the band that opened for the Three O'clock when I saw them in San Francisco oh. during the whole Coachella thing. I got to look for yeah. my ticket, and I remember I made I. I made a note of it. I go, oh, this band sounds really good. Totally in the vibe of the moment. And just when he mentioned it, yeah. I said, oh, you were there. That's it. Great American yeah, you flew up for that. It had yeah. to be them. Yeah, it had to be them. Yeah. Wow. That's great. No, no. Uh, this is great. Cool. Yeah, you yeah, were there. Yeah. And, uh, Ronnie, we can't thank you enough for everything that you do for us. So thank oh, you. Oh, hey. Um, it's been a while, but thanks for having Always, always fun. And, uh, Thanks for letting me uh, talk. So yeah, much. we're starting to slow down a little bit, so we're so, we're glad. Well, though Jeff, yeah, Jeff told me up. like Jeff told me we need you to talk a lot this episode, so that's why <laughs> I, I not that I don't every other episode. Too, but, uh, Are you kidding? They didn't need us. All we had to do was just give them a question, and they went with it. No, it's true. It's true. It was hard to kind of break in with they those were guys. Perfect. Right so, they were perfect. So yeah. All right, so. all right, Ronnie. Go. All right, great job. Thank all you. Right. Be nice, you guys. I'm signing off Bye. here. Be All nice. right. Okay. <laughs> All right. See you later. Okay. Now that he's oh. gone. How much do you love Ronnie Barnett? One. So much. And then how much do we have some love and admiration for Dale and Hector? Dale and oh my Peñalosa. Really just giving us the straight story lots of anecdotes i still want to know what happened in the house behind fitzgerald's in houston do you hey i'm a big girl i can take it i you know i'm old enough i can hear those stories but i'm curious as i'll get out but um this was a really really interesting walk through the band the through the band's history yeah and you know what soraya that I want to say that the chemistry between these two guys, it's totally still there. Oh so my gosh. I'm, you know, the uh, I think it was Dale that said, you know, we're, and I remember I wrote it down. Um, he said, we're, you know, we like each other and we're still a family. Mm. We're a family. And uh, I, I really liked that knowing that i liked he said we've gone back together a few times we hang out we're a family i love that and uh and that they have you know and then he said you know we've reunited a few times and we've had a lot of fun i like hearing that from bands when they can still get together play and enjoy each other's company and enjoy the music that they created together yes that to me is it really says something and and then when you think about it, here's this band that's got this one album, one single. And then there are some demos and 
you know, additional tracks out there that thankfully, you know, they still have some, some uh, tapes and, you know, with a fire so much can be lost, but the fact that Dale said, no, we still have, we were, some things were saved and, you know, some things already exist and, um, you know, their story can still be told and preserved. And I think that's something that you and I have talked about so much about the music that we love in this era. The fact that we're able to help band stories be known and be told, you know, I I think it's, it's valuable. Agreed. Agreed. You know, and then Dale mentioned something. Wait, let me get back to that about this this club above the Mabuhe club, I think he called it on Broadway. Yes. Where he said, great gigs, but no photos because they were too busy having fun. And I now I'm, I, I wrote it down because I go, I go, somebody somewhere has written about this place and maybe has some flyers, but I'm really intrigued. Like they just kept giving us gold. They kept giving us yeah. pieces of this story that you and I are fascinated by. Yeah. Like we just can't get enough of this moment and the places and spaces and the people that were a part of it. Absolutely. Very cool. And Dale kept sliding in Paisley Underground, little anecdotes here and there. That was pretty awesome. Very cool. So next week, Soraya, we'll be talking about this little gem right oh. here. So uh, this guy will be coming back and bringing a friend. So um, we'll be talking about the Muffs really, really happy reissue and the original recording. So I'm I'm looking forward to that because like Ronnie says, it's not too often that Roy and Ronnie get interviewed together. So (laughs) I'm really uh, we've met Roy and um, uh, we've had Ronnie on a few times and I'm just curious to see. how that chemistry between them um because we've seen them on stage yes we see that chemistry but what what's it going to be like with these two guys in a zoom meeting room together so looking forward to that one sorry gonna be fun gonna be fun so mi gente agrubiar groove on paisley people You're digging deep. Hey, Hector. Hi, hey, yeah. Hi, oh, buddy. I'm good. Good. I, I was telling them I just left a um, upstairs where my Chilean in-law and Ronnie Barnett. Hey. My Chilean in-laws are here, so um, it, I just like ran away from a table of, of tri-tip and a lot of speaking in Spanish, uh, a different version of the Chilean one. And you got the mood right. lighting going there, Dale. Yeah. Like so that. excuse me if I slip up. Very good lighting in that background. The mood, love it. Oh, you, you like it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, my daughter coached me. I'm jealous. And Soraya, this might be the first appearance of Gumby on out of 171 episodes. <laughs> I see the guy. I in the, see the guy in the bottom. He's in the back. <laughs> He's a six-footer.
He's a six foot Gumby, inflatable. Wow. No, the, <laughs> the guy on the bottom is Ronnie. <laughs>